we're going to read out of First John 5, um, verses 19 through 21. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding, so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, and his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Amen. We'll dismiss our school-aged kids to the back. They're going to go have some fun back there. While they're going, um, if you haven't already, would you open your Bibles to uh, 1 John chapter 5? We are finishing uh, the first of John's three letters. Uh, that he wrote to um, the scattered churches, uh, part of the diaspora. And, um, man, if, uh, if Reynolds wasn't a softie before this summer, he's going to be um, sending her away, uh, RJ fixing to go to college. It's a good thing Gracie's staying around to, like, you know, keep the house together. Thank you for doing that, Gracie. I thought about this passage a lot this week, and in that, in that very same picture of like, you know, there's going to come a day, for those of you who got kids, that you're going to send your kid off to, off to college or off to technical school or off to whatever they're going to do, their career. You know, they're going to they're gonna leave home, and that's a good thing and a right thing. Um, but as a parent, like, there's always this thing in the back of your mind, like, have I prepared them well for that moment? And I can just imagine, you know, what are, what are we going to tell our kids as they're, like, getting ready to drive away? This is what one of these conversations, is what it sounds like to me. You know, I've told you that John is, uh, is older in years. The other Gospels were written several decades before this. He's going to uh, write his Gospel that bears his name, then these three letters to the scattered church, and then he's going to write the book of Revelation. And he's older. He's, he's Grandpa Pastor John. That's who he is. And you can just see, just from his heart are coming these things. And this is kind of his last shot. Didn't know if he was going to write those other two letters. This feels like just the last words. So as you're thinking that and you're thinking about your kids leaving, what are you going to tell them to make sure they know before they drive away? This is what John says. These three things. He reminds them of who they are. He just wants them to know that, that you are God's children. He reminds them of where they are. He reminds them that they live in enemy-occupied territory. And then he gives them a warning to keep yourselves from idols. That's like, that's his literal last words. So I want to talk about those things in that order. First, this idea of kingdom identity. Who we are. We know that we are children of God, he says in verse 19, and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. Then he keeps going back to this kingdom identity. We also know that the Son of God has come to give us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him. If you write or underline in your Bible, I encourage you to do that. That, 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 verse, that. Those two words, in him. And we are in him 
who is true by being in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and he is the eternal life. You remember John's the one that penned all the I am statements of Jesus. One of those being this very thing, that he is the way, the truth, and the life, or the eternal life. And this is what he says here. He is true, he is the true God, and eternal life. So let's talk about this first concept quickly, this idea of kingdom identity. And I, and I will say this, that we could spend several weeks on just this one thing. As, as I was just reading back through the Gospel of John, back through 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John this week, spent some time in Ephesians this week, chapters 1 through 3 of Ephesians is mostly theology, but it's theology as applied to our lives. This is, man, the Apostle Paul wanted the church at Ephesus to know this so much. We are in him. John has admonished us again and again in this letter alone that we would remind ourselves about the truth of who we are in Christ. He says that we are loved. He says that we're chosen, we're forgiven, we're redeemed, we're adopted. Even John here in this passage calls us little children. Just such a tender, dear, affectionate word. It implies this, we're part of this family, that we're, that we're needy in a sense, as little children can't go do life on their own. Little children, remember that you are in him. I was reading through Ephesians uh, this week, just part of my devotional time, and we almost just preached the first three chapters of Ephesians this morning. I just, literally, I had 25 pages of notes and I had to cut them all, but Go read Ephesians 1 through 3 this week and just, it is over and over. Paul, just again, the heart of a father of Paul and the, these, are, these are his spiritual kids and he just wants them to know everything that is theirs, their kingdom identity in Christ. I share just a bit with that with you in, in verse 3 of chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Every spiritual blessing. And if you just walk through verse 1, he tells us that we've been chosen in him and that we're blameless in him and we've been adopted in him and we've been redeemed through him, forgiven in him, and we have wisdom and insight in him that we've been united to each other through him or in him. Our inheritance is in him. Our hope is in him. And literally, we could just keep going. That's just chapter 1. Every spiritual blessing, isn't that breathtaking? Every spiritual blessing in him. Do you see the pattern to summarize that every joy and every benefit that your heart and soul need and long for are already yours in Jesus Christ? Every spiritual blessing. God is committed to satisfying your deepest desires by thrilling you with himself. Now, our world wants to tell you that you need everything else. And if you just had this and this and this and this, and Jesus says, no, all that stuff's garbage. If you just had me, I created you, I, I created your soul, and I made it run off of nothing more than me. 
And you can go chase all those other things and you can find out that they're false wells and then you can pull up the bucket from that well and it might look appealing for a moment, but it's just poisonous. It's not going to give you anything. Jesus says everything that you need to know and remember is found in Christ. We've got some soundtracks around our house when we talk about what it means to be, to be an Allen. That we don't that we pursue excellence, not perfection. It's things we say. Allens pursue excellence, not perfection. Allens, if you're an Allen, you, you, don't, you don't give up. Things we remind our kids, this is what it means. These are the things I hope they take. This is what Paul, this is what John is saying to us. Hey, hey, before the last words I got for you, just remember who you are in Christ. That God is committed to satisfying the deepest desires of your soul. By thrilling you with himself, thrilling you. Can you imagine the most thrilling thing that you've ever done and your heart beats quickly and you're just enamored with joy in that moment? It is so thrilling. Maybe it's a seeing the Grand Canyon or riding a roller coaster for you or getting a good deal at Target, whatever it is. But you're just thrilled in your heart. And this is what God is so committed. But it only happens when we realize that all of these blessings are us are for us when we, are, when we realize that they're, they're, they're secured in him. He says, he says right above that, in verse 20, we also know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know who is true. That the, the Spirit himself is working inside us to give us understanding so it's like opening up a new Christmas package every morning that we're finding out more and more about who we are in him and who God made us to be and the spiritual gifts that he has actually given us that we're growing and understanding it's this process of maturing and understanding and this is a gift that God gives us of course, the problem is, is that we forget. We forget who we are. We forget whose we are and why we're here and who the real enemy is and what it's like to succeed in the kingdom of God. And so John is reminding the church and Paul is reminding the church at Ephesus. He goes on in, in chapter 1. He prays that we would know the riches of being in Christ. But the reason I bring it up is he uses the same word, understanding. He prays that the eyes of our heart may be enlightened in chapter 1, verse 18 through 20. And that translation is the same word understanding that John uses here. The reason is, this is not an emotional thing that John wants us to know. Not an emotional thing that even Paul wants us to know. They use the word, they translate the word, it's maybe translated heart in yours in Ephesians 1. It's the word for understanding. And, and the reason is the Hellenistic and Jewish world to which this is written, heart was synonymous with thinking and not feeling. If you wanted to love someone with all of your heart in that world, you wouldn't give them little candy hearts. You would give them little candy pictures of your bowels. That's, that's how they said heart. That was emotion. Like literally to the bowels are the seat of your emotion. We, we translate some of that today like I have a gut feeling about something. But the, the organ of comprehension for the believer was their thinking process, not their emotions. And this is what Paul's trying to appeal to. This is what John's trying to appeal to. Not the emotion, but to the mind, to the will, to the thinking. Christianity is not designed to appeal to the emotions. Emotions should come with it, absolutely. But it starts in the mind. 
And when your emotions get in front of your mind, then your life's out of balance, right? Then you become a person like he talked about in chapter 4, tossed about by every wind of doctrine. Paul's not praying that our emotions would be enlightened, but that our thinking would be enlightened. Very similar thing that he would tell the Roman church, that they would continue to be transformed, not by what they felt in their emotions, but by what? By the renewing of their minds. So this is what Paul's praying for. This is what John is praying for. And again, this is not the first time we see this in the, in the letter of John. If you go back just two chapters to chapter 3, he starts off by, See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And then highlighted in my Bible, and so we are. The reason why the world didn't know us, it didn't know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. See this kingdom identity? See Grandpa Pastor John trying to get this to us? He's saying, listen, you, you may be confused about a lot of things, but don't miss this. Who you are in Christ. This is the foundation of everything. Again, the Apostle Paul would remind the church at Colossae in chapter 3, verse 2. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts and kindness and humility. Again, Paul's reminding that church of the same thing. Every one of Paul's letters, he gets to this idea. Kingdom identity, kingdom identity, kingdom identity. Because if you know who you are and whose you are, when life gets difficult and life gets rough and things don't go according to plan and someone hurts you or you're betrayed or rejected, then, then you won't lose your bearing because you'll remember that you serve the king of kings. And not only do you serve him, you are in him. We have to pursue this identity, to know the depth of it, to keep it at the top of our minds. Kingdom identity. And then the earthly reality. And man, we could spend so much time here. We don't talk about this stuff very much at all. But he says in verse 19, and we know that we're the children of God. Secondly, we know that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. The whole world. Now, we live in the in-between. We talked about this at length a couple weeks ago when we talked about the forward-backward nature of the gospel. Just wanted to make sure we confused everyone. Forward-backward. When we fast forward, we know where the world is headed and that Christ is working to make everything new. This will come true. This is what we just sang about, that he's preparing a place for us. Satan will be defeated and banished to hell forever with his demons and all that do his work, but that hasn't happened yet. We rewind back to our current reality. We go, we go backward, and what do we see? We see the reality that the world is becoming increasingly engulfed by evil. There's, there's, there's not a moment in the national news where there's not breaking news, and you see the power of the evil one wrecking our world through shootings. I mean, it just seems like it's everywhere. Like the enemy just does not even care that anyone knows his tricks anymore. He is coming at church his goal his agenda is to deceive and to 
divide and to destroy. Can't you see this happening? We just went through three years of COVID, divided over COVID. I'm not talking about the world. I'm talking about the church in the world. The, the church was divided over COVID. And if you didn't believe exactly what I believe about this and that, then we're going to sever the relationship and we cannot push back the kingdom of darkness and expand the kingdom of light together anymore because we agree. We disagree on this one little thing. It was COVID and then it was politics. Oh, if you don't vote like I, I am and you don't think that this next uh, president is going to be the, the savior of the world to answer all our problems, if you, if you don't align with me on this specific thing, then we have to divide our relationship and you go that way and, and, and I'll go this way. And then the issue of race. We have been walking through this. And let me promise you this. The church failed the test. We weren't talking about the depths of the gospel or the unity that we're surrounding or the supernatural power of the spirit inside of us. No, we were debating these lesser, 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 lesser issues. And so even if you did share the gospel with someone, they would point to the local church and be like, oh, you mean, you mean love each other like those people love each other? Because they hate each other. And we robbed the very gospel of its power because we did not live it out. But this is the enemy's agenda. This is what he was trying to do in the beginning. He wants to deceive. He wants to divide. And he wants to destroy. Listen, the enemy wants to destroy your life. He wants to destroy your marriage. He wants to destroy your friendships. He wants to, to destroy this community of faith. He wants to destroy anything that would stand for truth and push back the kingdom of darkness. And he's coming after you. Now, that's no reason to be scared. Even John reminded us, he who is in you is greater than he is in the world. So I don't want you to be scared, but I do, I do want you to be aware. We are in a battle of intense fury. The Bible talks about spirituality and warfare terms. And again, we don't, we, we don't talk about these a lot. Over 250 times in the New Testament alone, it talks about the war or our enemy or the devil. This was not lost on Jesus. And the more educated we become, we like to kind of put those things away, but it is clearly in the word of God. He reminds us in Ephesians 5. This is Paul's last words to that church in Ephesus. Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. You've heard this before. I was just reading this. Just hear this language. This is what Paul's put on the full armor of God. So that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. What are the schemes? Divide, deceive, destroy. For our struggle, Paul says, is not against flesh and blood. It's not against your neighbors. It's not against the person your MC. It's not even against your in-laws. Our struggle is not against those things. It's against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness. Against the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. This is why John says, hey, listen, I want you to remember all your, your, just your, your kingdom identity, and I want you to be clothed in that, and, and I want you to wrap yourself and know who you are and whose you are. I want you to know that, but also know that you're living in enemy-occupied territory. When the Bible talks about the arrival of Jesus on the planet, it speaks of it as a landed invasion. As much as he came to be the, land, the Lamb of God and a shepherd of his people, he came to be a warrior. We sang about this in the song, The Lion of Judah. First John tells us, reminds us, that the Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. 
the arrival of Jesus was this landed invasion, and it was meant to be a rescue operation. He came, as Colossians said, to rescue us out of the dominion of darkness and bring a group of people, the church, that would run to him. Jesus came to invade, to conquer. We're no longer slaves to sins, church. Now slaves to righteousness. And as we look to him, we look at the reality of our spiritual life. The Bible presents to us that it's not only a battle that happened, it's an ongoing mission that we live in. And every day you wake up on this side of heaven, you wake up in the enemy-occupied territory. C.S. Lewis talked about this, this word, enemy-occupied territory. That's what the world is, he says. Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed. You may say landed in disguise. And it's calling us all to take part in the great campaign of sabotage. Jesus is beating back the darkness. And he's calling a group to join him in the fight. This is not the time to sleep in. It's not the time to be lured to sleep. The time, as Paul presented, is a time of urgency. As John presented, it's a time of urgency. That we seek the heart of the Father and we respond to him. Church, listen, 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 listen. What's he saying to you right now? The spirit alive in you, he's, he's leading you. And you're discovering truth. And he's reminding you of your identity. What's he saying? He reminds us in Ephesians 5 that we would be strong in the Lord, that we would put on the armor of God, praying and standing against the enemy. It's for that very reason why John's very last words in this letter are so simple and so difficult. I mean, he's always gotten straight to the point, but, but I really think that you would end it with a little bit more eloquence. He says, little children, keep yourself from idols. Again, back to the driveway. Your kids are driving off to... What do you yell to them? You remind them to brush their teeth? Keep the credit cards closed? Don't let anyone steal your identity? Don't run out of gas? Don't do anything I wouldn't do? What, what, are, you, what are you telling them? John says, hey, children, 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 children. Keep yourself from idols. It's a bit offensive. What do you mean, John? You just... You just think that I'm just going to go around just getting idols? Yes. That's what he thinks. Because that struggle is more real in this room than any of us would like to admit. Let me say it this way. Your life is formed by what you put first. And so many of us through COVID, the last three years, we've drifted away from the heart of Jesus. Jesus hadn't moved. He hadn't left. He's still here. He's still calling. But the idols of our culture are so deceptive. The idols of culture slowly creep in and begin to grab our hearts. It happened to King David. It happened to King Solomon. It happened to Peter, the very leader of the church. And let me promise you, friends, it's going to happen to you. And the process... The biblical process of this, of exposing idols and turning back to the Lord, is 
is the word repentance. This was the first message of Jesus when he began preaching. It was a message of repentance. It was the, it was the message that John the Baptist brought. It was, a, it was a message of repentance. But it's, when we think of idols, we, I, I think of, of the people in Asia who have, who have literal, literal idols on the, on the mantle above their fireplace that they, they bow down and pray to. But it's much more deceptive here because we don't have idols that are, that are, that are on a shelf. Our, our idols are, are in the driveway or our idols are what we're doing on the weekend or our idols are what we're spending our, our money on. And if we're not careful, those idols. I, I've been traveling a lot and, uh, and then I was sitting in, the, in my swing this week, I guess on, on Thursday morning, and I was looking at the flower beds. And my flower beds, if you're my neighbor, I'm sorry, have been un, unattended for, for a quick minute. And so I go out there, and literally, I feel, like, uh, I feel like Bigfoot could be hiding in my flower bed. There's just vines and stuff everywhere. And I'm going to go to war with those vines. So I change clothes and put my gloves on, and I get out there, and I just begin to pull and pull. But they've been unattended for so long that the vines have grown around my rose bushes and my Indian hawthorn. They've grown around there and everything. So I can't just pull because then I pull... I pull the good stuff out. I have to be much slower and methodical and cutting around the base of the, of the, of the, of the, of the, of the rose bush that I want to keep. And this is what it's like in our, in, with idols. If we're not careful, we look at ourselves and we're like, oh, yeah, just a rose bush. We're good. But at the base of that, there's so much vine. There's idols just creep in. This is what Paul says to the church at uh, Galatia. He says, who has bewitched you? Almost like you had a curse put on you. You have, you have drifted so far from the gospel. And I think that might be his leading message to the church in the West today. Culture had a spell on them. So what is an idol? I'll let someone much smarter than me, Tim Keller defines an idol this way. So why do we lie or fail to love or break our promises or live selfishly? Of course, the general answer is because we're weak and sinful. But the specific answer is there's something besides Jesus Christ that we feel we must have to be happy. Something that is more important to our heart than God. Something that is enslaving our heart through inordinate desires. The key to change or even self-understanding or diagnosing the idols of the heart is therefore to identify the idols of our hearts. Here's, here's his little metric of way that you can say, man, what kind of idol seems to be creeping around my heart? Go to the next slide. I think I have this on there. This is probably too, too, too small for you to read in the back. Let me read it for you. Life only has meaning, or I only have worth if. If I have power and influence over others, that's the power idolatry. That, that I have to have a place of prominence, that people need to notice me when I'm coming in the room. I need to be the one. Or second, that I'm loved and respected by blank, anybody you could put. If your life only has meaning when you're loved and respected by your spouse, she's become an idol. When I've loved and respected by my kids, they've become the idol. When I'm loved and respected by my boss, he's the idol. 
when I'm loved and respected by uh, the people in my neighborhood or the groups that I run with or the parents on the soccer or, or whatever it is. That's the approval idolatry. That's the idol of approval. Or thirdly, life only has meaning or, or I only have worth if I have this kind of pleasure experience or this particular quality of life. Like I want to have the right thing in the driveway and I want to have the right finishes in my house. And if things don't go this certain way and something robs me of my comfort, it exposes that idol in my heart. It's not wrong to have comfortable things. It is wrong when we pursue comfort above all else. Or we can't have a joy-filled life without it. Fourthly, I am able, my life only has meaning or only have worth if I'm able to get mastery over my life in the area of whatever. That's the control idol. You just got to be in control. Any of those familiar to you? And here's the truth, friend. This is why this is such a great warning from Grandpa Pastor John. Because he loves you. And he knows that the enemy will use these idols, these lesser things, to numb us from the reality of what we're here to do. And we'll just live a good American dream life. And we'll send our kiddos to good schools. And we'll give them great experiences and vacations like we never had. And we'll put money in a college fund. And we'll give them cars to drive. And we will give them everything but Jesus. Because of the idols of our heart. I was reading this this week in in John 4 on, on, on Wednesday morning. John has this remarkable interaction with the Samaritan woman. You remember this? And I think certainly this is in John's mind as he's writing this this last thing. I I couldn't prove it, but it it just seems like it is just pouring off of his heart. Of course, the entire sermon itself is, 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 is amazing. But the way that Jesus deals with this woman's false idols. In John chapter 4, I'm just going to read just a bit to you. He's... He's, he's in Samaria. He's, he's talking to this woman. This would have been just culturally just, uh, you just couldn't do it. A man couldn't talk to a woman in the middle of the day. The woman's there in the middle of the day because she, didn't have, she couldn't go with the women earlier in the day. This was like the one spot in a male-dominated society that the women kind of had their own spot. And the, part of the division of, 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 of tasks, the women went to get the water. They would spend the mornings getting the water. But this, this woman didn't fit there, so she couldn't go there. During that day, so she's coming in the heat of the day, and this is where Jesus meets her and radically is going to change her life. And they begin talking about this water, and then Jesus offers, he says, if you knew he was talking to you, you would, you would ask me, and I would give you living water. That's where we pick up in verse 11. Sir, the woman says, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can I, where can I get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them 
Man, this is so powerful. Will become like in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me that water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. So the setup is there. He's offered the living water. She wants the living water. And then what does Jesus do next? He says, go and call your husband and come back. The conversation would go on and she'd be like, well, I don't, I don't, I don't have a husband. And he'd be like, it's true, you don't have a husband, but you've had five husbands and the man you're living with now is not your husband. To drink of the living water, Jesus first had to deal with her idols. Sincerity was not enough. Some people are sincerely wrong. Jesus tells her, go and get your husband. The truth is, Jesus will always come in and he will look for points of error and he will point us to worshiping him. He would say to worship in spirit and truth. They go on to this theological discussion that they're having about uh, worshiping on the mountain in Samaria or, or worshiping on the mountain in Jerusalem. And Jesus would say, listen, there's coming a day where you won't worship on this mountain or that mountain, but you will worship in spirit and in truth. But in order to get there, Jesus has to confront the false wells that she keeps running to before she can get to the living water. In the same way, this is what happens. That Jesus has to confront the false wells that we run to. Now, don't look all pious and holy out there. What, what are the false wells that we run to? There, there, there are, we know them, don't, do we not? If I could just make a little more. If I could just retire. If I, could just, if I just had a different spouse or different kids or different friends. The majority of people that, I, that I've met in my lifetime, they love what Jesus offers. Even in the church. They love the community. They love their theology. They love the promise of heaven. They might even love singing the, the songs. and they, they might even love the preaching. But let me tell you where most people draw the line. Their sin. They don't want to deal with it. They don't want to talk about it. They don't want to address it. They don't want accountability for it. They don't want to repent. They're just going to rename the sin, the idols in their life. They're going to rename, rename it a struggle. I'm just struggling. Listen, God, God's not going to redeem who you pretend to be. You've got to come to him with your, your honest self. The sins and all of it and just bring it to him. Jesus, this is who I am. And although he confronts us of our sin, he doesn't condemn us. There is not one ounce of condemnation in this interaction. Read all through the, the, the gospel of John. He confronts sin with the rich young ruler. He doesn't condemn him. He invites him and the rich, rich young ruler chose a different way. He saw him, he loved him, but then he called out a sin. He put his finger on the idols of his heart. Friends, Jesus wants your heart. This is what Jesus does. He wants to protect us from the false idols, for protect us from, this is what love, isn't this what love is? Don't you want to protect your kids from harming themselves. That's what love is. You want to protect them. I've told this story before. I remember when Claire was probably two years old and we're going to check the mail 
And it was, you know, we were on the street, and there's a car coming, and I don't know if she saw a flower across the street or whatever, but she wanted to go get it. And that girl is as stubborn as, as, as anybody I've ever met. She wanted, no, no, Claire, you can't get it. Wait till the car. No, no, I want it now, Daddy. And she literally just threw herself into the road. And I grabbed onto her arm, her body going this way, me pulling her back this way, pulled her elbow out of, out of socket. She's screaming, crying. Isn't that, isn't that what love is? That you would protect your kids from something that would harm them? Listen, listen, listen. God loves you so much. He's not going to allow you to be satisfied with the things that don't bring satisfaction. As, as a matter of fact, he wants to protect you from those things that are going to hurt you. This is the word from John, little children. Guard yourself. Protect yourself from idols. Jesus wants your heart. He wants what's best for you. So he confronts the things in us that are untrue, the things that we're pursuing that will eventually hurt us. He loves us so much that he will not let the things that kill your spirit stay in your life. So he tells this woman, hey, I want you to go get your husband. But what would he tell you this morning? Hey, go get your... Hey, hey, hey bring your... Hey, I want to talk to you about... And though he confronts us, he doesn't condemn us. Jesus came to set us free, not to condemn us. He didn't come all the way to heaven to show up at this well, to rub this lady's nose in her sin. No, he came that she would be able to live and walk in freedom. How do we get there? Many of us might be fine just following Jesus at a distance and hoping never to have this difficult conversation with him. But where would that leave us? In the status quo, an apathetic, a meaningless life, a life removed of power and adventure, and joining Jesus on the redemptive edge? Friends, don't miss this reminder from John. Remember who you are. Remember where you are. And keep yourself from idols. Let me tell you what the key is here. We could talk about accountability. I think that's true in Christian community. I think that's true in speaking truth to one another in love. I think that's true. That is certainly part of it. But you know how you keep yourself from idols? Attention and affection with Jesus. Attention to Jesus. You know the difference between glancing at something and glaring at something? Glancing at something, we barely notice it. Glaring at something, we stare at it. And that's the difference between a life full of idols or a life walking in freedom filled with the power of God, joining him on the redemptive edge to push back the kingdom of darkness. That's the difference, the glancing and glaring, the attention and the affection. When we, we give our attention to everything. And the world knows that they're coming up with new things. They're coming up with new TV shows. I mean, how many different streaming things do we, have to, do we have to have now? I feel like I'm paying more than my house mortgage just on streaming things. You, you can't watch. No, you got you to get, gotta get uh, Peacock for that and Paramount for this. And you, you got to get all the, you know, just, just to grab our attention. We just, the world knows that the power is in what we are staring at and what we're looking to for hope. The key is attention and affection. 
when we bring our undistracted attention to Jesus, he speaks to us. And then our affection begins to grow. Listen, this happened to me this week. And I'm not saying this is a normal occurrence for me, but, but, but it is becoming more frequent. Because I understand, the older I get, that there's more idols in my heart than I'm willing to admit. And I know how to act holy, and I know how to say the right things. And, and I know how to lie even to myself. But those idols just creeping at the base of my heart. So I woke up Wednesday morning, and we've been serving some church planters, and I was, I, was, I was so tired. And I opened God's word to this passage in John 4 and read it about the, the woman at the well and living water. And then I started thinking, man, you know, he says almost the same thing in, in, in John chapter 7. Anyone who, 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 who thirsts, if he would believe in me, then rivers of living water would flow out of him. And I began to just think about that, and I began to just put my attention on that and wrap my affection around that. I began to pray that, Jesus, would you, would, would you, help, would you help me? I, I want to see rivers of living water flow out of me, that no matter what happens to me today or difficulty or, 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 or discouragement or, or whatever, whatever would happen, that my attention and my affection would be on you. Would you, would you, help, would you help me do that? I just began to pray that. Lord, I want to see rivers of living water Rivers of living water flow through me. All the while, I'm coming down the elevator, and I'm praying real, real quiet to myself. You know how you kind of mumble? Everybody, I'm sure everybody thought I was crazy, man. I'm just like, rivers of living water. Jesus, help me have rivers, rivers of living water. And then I'm, and I'm walking in the parking lot, and I'm pulling my suitcase. I'm checking out of the hotel. I'm pulling the suitcase, and I come back back on, and I'm just praying living water. And then I can't find my truck. I have no idea where my truck is. Now, to my defense, I've stayed in a lot of hotels in the past three weeks, and I, don't, I just don't remember, which is not unlike me. I forget things like this all the time. And so this is a big hotel, and so I'm thinking, well, maybe I parked around back. So I'm walking around this entire hotel, pulling my, pulling my back, mumbling, Lord, rivers of living water. Would you give me rivers of living water? And I had one of those moments where I felt like Jesus, like, showed up and was walking with me. And I began to cry and weep. My heart was so overwhelmed with his love for me in that moment. And I just began to declare back to him the promises of John. Jesus, you are the living water. You are the way. You're the truth. You're the life. You are, you are my good shepherd. You care about my soul. You are the resurrection and the life. You are the door. I'm declaring these I mean, literally, everyone thought I was crazy now. I'm sure people are calling the cops and walking around this hotel. That's attention and affection. You know, it's, it's crazy to me that we can't match the intensity of the levels of our sin before Christ with the, with the level of love and attention and, 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 and affection for God after Christ. Before Christ, we were crazy. And we did the craziest thing at the loudest volumes we could do. And then we come to Christ and we just sit here in our little things. And like, well, this song's okay. I'm not going to sing about it. I'm certainly not going to sing about dancing. I'm certainly not going to get emotional about all that God has done. Do you remember what it was like to be lost and to be found? If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink, Jesus says. Whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Let me pray for us. I'm going to give you some time right where you're at. The band's coming up. And 
We're going to take communion in a second. This, this communion, this beautiful reminder of our identity in Christ. That our sins were paid for by his death on the cross. That he was condemned so that we could be accepted and free. And this little communion thing with Jesus instituted. And he said, when you, when you gather, do this in remembrance of me. And so that's what we do. And we're going to do that in a minute. But before we get to that part, I just want you to spend some time with Jesus just right where you're at. And some of you, the, point, the first point is just, is you, this is what you hear the Holy Spirit telling you. Just remember your kingdom identity. That you are loved and chosen and forgiven and accepted. That every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realm is yours. And you have felt condemned and judged. You've been hurt so deeply and you just need to be reminded. The king of kings. Is your father. For some of you, you've just forgotten where you are, that you're in enemy-occupied territory. You're, you're living as if there's not a spiritual battle going on all around you. Because you forget you're in a battle, you don't put on your spiritual armor. You don't even know where that belt of truth is. Where did I put that belt of truth? Maybe you just need to be reminded, hey, hey, you're in any enemy-occupied territory. No, no reason to fear. But let's just be real about where, where we're at. And thirdly, maybe it's the spiritual boundaries that he warns you about. Maybe it's the idols. Little children, keep yourself from idols. God, I want to thank you for your word. Spirit, how you speak so deeply to our hearts. I pray that you would speak to us this morning. As we take communion, that we would be reminded of all the promises of who we are in you. That you didn't come to condemn us, but to confront us because you want what's best for us. If there's idols in our heart, I pray that we can lay them at your altar today, that we can bring them to you, repent of those things, and that we would sing and respond in worship. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. I'll be in the back if you'd like to pray with someone. The communion table's already open. I encourage you to take some time and just pray through what God might be saying to you.